Sorry, good morning. Um, so today we're starting a new series. Uh, it's a series on the Apostles' Creed, um, and it's going to be taking us through about the next eight weeks. Uh, so before we start, though, I'm going to tell a little hypothetical story. Um, so suppose I'm a young man, I'm living at home, not married yet, and I'm just beginning my career. I have a job that's very, very intense. It's very important to the country I live in, and uh, it requires me to apply everything that I've learned throughout a whole lifetime. All my skills, my strength, my knowledge. I have to put my body into it, my mind into it. All this goes into it. And I'm part of a culture and a heritage that goes back generations. So every day I leave the house to go to work, and my mom, and I didn't realize my mom would be in the audience today when I picked this, but she wants to remind me of all that. And so she doesn't sit me down and say, now son, remember when you were three, we taught you this, and you, when you were four, you learned this, and when you were five, you experienced this, and when you were 10, you overcame this, and on and on for hours and hours, which it would take. Instead, she simply yells after me, with it or on it. And with those five simple little words, I suddenly understand everything that's expected of me. All those experiences that I talked about my whole life before, the culture, all comes flooding back into my mind. And with those five simple words, I'm reminded of all those things. And you might ask, well, how, how is that possible? How can you do this with a couple of small words? And some of you may recognize the reference. Um, other views probably don't. But this is what the, <coughs> the Spartan mothers would yell to their sons as they went off to war. And it was a shortened version of with your shield or on it. And what they were saying to their sons were, you are a Spartan warrior. We expect you to go out in battle, take your culture, your heritage, your training, your experience with you, and we expect you to return victorious holding your shield, or we expect you to return being carried on your shield by your comrades because you fell in battle. What you are certainly not going to do is throw away that shield and run. Right? So, just a couple of words, you can understand that. And it's always been helpful to take big and complex ideas and boil them down into a simple form that we can remember. We just celebrated July 4th, right? Of course, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, that document, in some short phrases, summed up many of the things that we hold as truths in our country here. You might think about the expression, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal, and goes on to talk about the rights that come with that. Or we can move a little forward in our, uh, our history and think about the Gettysburg Address. It was the dedication of the cemetery at Gettysburg. And the great orator of the day, Everett, spoke for two hours before Lincoln. Now I'm guessing that nobody here remembers anything Everett said, perhaps with the exception of Jim. Um, and after him, Lincoln got up and he spoke 272 words. And with those 272 words, he summed up the cataclysmic events of that battle. He summed up their place in the overall war. He summed up the war and its context in the overall nation. He summed up the past of the nation, how it was born, the current conflict that they were in, and the future that he saw coming from it. He gave all this vision in just 272 words. And so sometimes it is really important 
that we'd be able to take these great ideas and sum them up into something very short. And this is not something that's isolated to Spartans or to politicians. Churches do it too. So, this, we preach Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. And growing up, we had a sign in front of our church that had these exact words on it. So if you were driving around the neighborhood and you saw this church, it's short enough, you can read it driving 25 miles per hour. Um, maybe even if you were driving a little faster, you'd still be able to pick it up. But it conveys a great deal about what that church would stand for, right? You would know, I understand what this church is about if I drove by and I saw those words written on it. The idea of summing everything up into a short, simple phrase is also not without biblical precedent. In Matthew chapter 22, we read, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so Jesus very simply and succinctly summed up the entire Old Testament, right? And he did this for a people that for the most part didn't have access to the texts of the scriptures, didn't have the ability to sit around all day talking about the scriptures, didn't have a lot of education, right? These were hardworking people that really did not have all those things available to them. But Jesus is saying, if you understand this, you understand everything that has come before me. Well, as we look at the Apostles' Creed, we'll see, I think, that it's, it's a beautiful summary of our beliefs as Christians. It's packed with meaning into just a few short phrases that are just so dense and so rich and so full that I think one will really only scratch the surface as we try and unpack them, but that we'll also see that by looking deeper, we can learn a lot. So before we take a look at the Creed itself, let's just turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the light that it shines upon our lives. Lord, we thank you for the truths that are contained in it. Lord, we thank you that you granted it to us. You gave us your Holy Spirit so we could understand it. Lord, we pray that we would live it out by your power. And Lord, that our lives would be changed because we know it. We lift this service up to you, Lord. We also just remember the children that are learning your word as well. We pray that the foundation would be laid for a lifetime of service and love of you. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. All right, so what do we know about the creed? Well, we know that it's very old. So I poked around the internet, of course, where you get your information from these days, and the Billy Graham website says that the creed goes back to 140 A.D. Uh, there was no reference to that, um, no citation, but that was the date that they gave. Um, reference is made to the creed itself in 390 A.D. in a letter from the Synod of Milan. Uh, and then we actually have copies of it going back all the way to 710 A.D. And uh, they also note that they find quotes from the creed in older literature. So more or less in the current form, we know that the creed goes back at least 1,300 years. So it is indeed very old and very connected to <coughs> the early church. So here's the creed. Now you may have trouble reading that. It's not because it's up on the screen and it's small, but it's because it's written in Latin. 
for everyone that was worried. Um, although because of English's Latin roots, actually, if you look at it, you can pick out a lot of the words and the phrases and uh, see a lot of it. But what that really means is that today we're going to be dealing with the translation. Now, if you do look closely, uh, because it is the largest text, you can probably make out that the first word is credo. And credo literally means I believe. So the creed starts out, I believe. Uh, and so as we look at the creed, and as you hear the word creed, realize that we're talking about something that reflects the personal belief of the speaker. So, as I said, the creed is very old. And of course, with something that old, sometimes there's some legends and stories that form around it. One of these is that the creed was written on the day of Pentecost. And the idea was that there's 12 phrases in the creed, and each disciple contributed one phrase to the creed. Um, and here's an artist's rendition of that. And you can see this artist has also decided who provided which sections of the creed. It starts with, with Peter, and it works its way through the disciples. Um, however, given what we know about the history of the creed, uh, how it was used, and uh, the records we have of it, we have to say this is probably not true. So the, the creed does not carry, let's say, the authority of having been apostolic in its origin. So how was the creed used? Well, who remembers these beauties from uh, grade school? Right? Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. It's the order of operations. Right? And my very educated mother just served us nine pizzas. <coughs> is of course, the order of the planet starting in the sun and working the way out. And depending on whether Pluto's in or out, she put the word pizza at the end, which makes it a more complete sentence. Um, but it, it, Pluto's in, it's out. I, I think it's out right now. Um, but anyway, just like these were devices to help you at school remember important ideas, the creed was used to help baptismal candidates remember what they were supposed to say when they got baptized. You see, even today, right, when we baptize somebody, we don't just baptize them, right? We ask them some questions first. We ask them, what do you believe? We want to make sure that they believe in Jesus, right? We want to make sure they believe that Jesus died for their sins, that he rose again, that he provides life and salvation, and so, again, we're dealing with a population that didn't have a lot of education, didn't have access to the text. So what they did is they condensed everything into the creed so that when it was time for you to be baptized and they say, what do you believe? You could recite the creed and give a very succinct and clear presentation of what you believed as a Christian and what you understood that you were professing through your baptism. And, of course, we'll point out that if people were memorizing a creed, it was adults, those aware of themselves, that were being baptized. As we said, the creed is not scripture. So whereas we've done an excellent job preserving the scripture over time, the creed has changed a little bit over time. And in fact, the section we look at today will have the phrase creator of heaven and earth in it. And that's actually not in the oldest forms of the creed. It was added later. Um, and again, because it's a translation, the translations get tweaked from time to time. And just as a point of reference, uh, as recently as 2011, the Catholic Church was revising their official translation of the creed. Um, 
So we want to keep these things in mind as we look at the creed, right? Its age, how it's treated, how it was used. But the real question for us is how does the creed stand up when it's exposed to Scripture, right? If it stands up when it's exposed to Scripture, then we can start thinking about what do those words mean for, for us? How can we expand on those principles? And that's what we're going to be doing in the next seven weeks. So, does the creed replace Scripture? Of course not. Is it something that defines our theology? Absolutely not. But I think what we'll do as we go through it, we'll see that it's a reflection of what we believe. So, the, how do we judge the creed? Well, of course, we judge it by how closely it aligns with Scripture. We don't judge it by who else uses it or how they use it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to place this creed side by side with Scripture and see if the two of them are in harmony. Now, of course, when you're dealing with something like this that's intended to sum up the core beliefs of the faith, there are some questions that arise, uh, some controversies. Uh, and so in two weeks, we'll be looking at the portion of the creed that contains the phrase, He descended to the dead. Now, I'm sure many people have heard the creed before, if you've gone to other churches or events and they've recited it, and you know that sometimes that's translated, he descended into hell. Well, we're using the translation that reflects the theology that we have. So in two weeks, Alan will be talking about that, and I'm pretty sure he'll address that, that topic. So let's just read through it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And of course, another point of the creed that people have contention with is the Holy Catholic Church. Well, as you can see, the C is lowercase. We're not referring to the Roman Catholic Church here. And many places you go that recite the creed if you look in the, the bulletin or wherever it is, there's an asterisk next to that. And it correctly says at the bottom, Catholic, you know, referring to the universal church of all believers in all times. So, again, for anyone that's concerned, that is how we're approaching that. So as you saw from that table there, we broke the creed down into eight pieces. And the, the piece we'll be dealing with today is God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and and earth. And so it starts with the phrase, I believe, as we talked about that word credo. And this already puts us on the footing that this is a personal thing that's belief-driven. So the I makes it personal, and the believe, of course, says that this relates to belief, not works. So as with all things, we're going to see, does this stack up to Scripture? And as we look at this, if we're talking about the core elements of our faith, is this an appropriate starting point to start with I believe? 
So John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. And of course, there's, there's, there's many, many verses. We're only going to be able to scratch the surface today. But again, here you can see that there's a correlation between those who received him, those who believed him, and those who get to be children of God. There's no extension to other groups here. It's those who receive, those who believe. They're the ones that become sons of God. So again, we see it's personal and it's belief-driven. Romans chapter 10. This, of course, is part of what we refer to as the Romans Road. Right? It's a series of verses that if you wanted to explain the way of salvation to someone, you would read through them. And this is kind of the, the concluding verse of that. So Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So again, you can see how personal it is, right? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved, right? And we can also see the element of belief, right? That you have to believe in your heart, that you believe unto righteousness. And of course, it's that confession and belief that ultimately leads to salvation. So we could go on and on all day long with examples of how our faith is personal and based upon belief. Um, but I think you get the idea. And if you haven't been convinced already, then there's probably no amount of words I could say this morning that will convince you. Uh, so in light of that, we're going to continue moving on uh, because we do have a lot to cover today. The next phrase in the creed, in God the Father Almighty. Now this is actually rendered two different ways in the various translations. Rendered as God the Father Almighty and God the Father Almighty. The only difference is the comma. Now, I'm by no means a scholar of grammar. It was not my high SAT scores that led me to go into the field of engineering. In fact, I was pretty sure that this was a good place for me to go because I wouldn't do a lot of writing. I really missed the train on that one. Um, <laughs> but what I was always told is that when you had a situation like this, where you had a statement and it was followed by a series of things in commas, that what you could do is take each statement that was offset by commas and apply it to the original statement. So I might say something like, I like chocolate, comma, cookies, and ice cream and you would know what I meant. But I could also say, I like chocolate cookies and ice cream, without the comma, right? That means that I like cookies that are made or have chocolate in them, and ice cream. Both those statements are perfectly true, um, but the comma does change the meaning. Sometimes commas can change the meaning a lot more. The ever famous statement, let's eat grandma. Yes, yeah, somebody said that in the audience there. Um, there's a big difference with and without the comma there. So we could be saying that I believe in God, I believe in the Father Almighty, or we could be saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And, and this happens other places, even with Scripture. 
You probably recognize this very famous verse about the Lord in the book of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But of course, and if you look at your footnotes in the Bible, there's some question as to whether he, wonderful is the noun or if wonderful is an adjective that describes his role as counselor. Now, neither translation is really unsatisfactory to us. He's wonderful and he's the wonderful counselor, but they are different. So today, we're going to treat this as if there was no comma there. And the reason for that is one thing we'll observe is that the creed is distinctly Trinitarian, right? We're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost here in the creed. And so while God's role as our Father is a beautiful and wonderful topic and a topic we could spend many, many sermons on, um, today our focus is going to be on God as the Father of Jesus, right? And we're going to look at that in the context of Jesus' relationship to the Father. And I think it's really interesting that in the service this morning, there was a lot of discussion about the father's relationship with the son and how he was pleased with the son and he loved the son. And now we're actually going to be looking at the other side of that, Jesus' relationship back towards the father. So let's look at some more scripture. You probably can't read this. I know it's very small. This is a passage from John 10. The Jews who were gathered there around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claimed to be God. And so the Jews recognized that as Jesus was saying these things, he was saying that he had a unique relationship with God the Father, one that put him on the same footing as God. They were okay with the expression, God is our Father, but they were not okay with the expression, God my Father, because to them that was more than just a me metaphor now. He was talking about a real familial relationship and it was different than the relationship that they saw they had with God where he was the creator and they were the created. They saw it as a very true claim by Christ that he was God, so much so that they planned to stone him for it. They were serious about this. They were ready to hear even that he was the Messiah, but they were not ready to hear that he was God. And so we see how Jesus calls God his father, puts him in the same family as God.
John 14, 28. You've heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So Jesus flat out says the Father is greater than he. Yet we know Jesus possessed all the fullness of God, yet when he came to earth, he emptied himself of that. So in spite of his true position as being God, while he was here on earth, he took a role of submission to the Father. And as we go through the next couple of slides, I want you to keep in mind that while Jesus put aside his glory to come down to earth, he did not put aside the knowledge of the fact that he was indeed God and that he was one with the Father. So he knows exactly who he is as he relates to the Father in this way. John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So now in addition to placing the Father above himself, he acknowledges that his purpose there is to do what the Father has commanded. Matthew 20, 23. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now normally the one sitting on the throne, which will be Jesus, has a right to appoint who sits at his left and who sits at his right. But again, Jesus is deferring this to the Father. He's acknowledging the authority of the Father and he's placing himself in a position of submission to the Father, just as it would be the case on an earthly father-to-son relationship. John 10, 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And so now we see that even though he's placed the Father above himself, he's placed himself in submission to the Father, he is also one with the Father. Luke twenty two forty two, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is preparing for his crucifixion. He knows the cup that has been set out before him by the Father is a bitter one. He knows what's coming, and yet he's willing to take that cup from, that the Father has given him so that we won't have to. And we see that it's his obedience to the Father that leads to the sacrifice for our salvation. Because Jesus put himself in submission to the Father, he undergoes the act that leads to our salvation. Now we move from the garden to the cross. Luke 23, 46. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus always trusted his Father. It's a theme throughout the Gospels. Right? And even as Jesus is dying, he's in agony on the cross. And not only is he in physical agony, he's facing separation from God the Father, who he's enjoyed perfect unity with for all of eternity up until now. And he trusts the Father. He commits his spirit into the Father's hands in this very, very difficult circumstance because he trusts the Father. John 1, 12. 
But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so it is through Christ that we have access to God the Father because he completed the work that the Father sent him to do. And Jesus prays to the Father about how through him we will have the same oneness with the Father that he enjoys with the Father. You can read about that in John chapter 17, verses 21 and 20 through 23. So what do we learn from all this? We learn that Jesus, in spite of the oneness that he had with the Father, treated the Father with a great deal of respect and obedience in all things, and that through doing so, he made the way of salvation for us. So the question for us is that do we as the creation reverence the Father the same way that Jesus did, or do we allow our pride and our stubbornness to get in the way? Do we allow ourselves to think, I've got this all covered, when really it's God the Father that does? So then we move on. What about this phrase, almighty? It's a name that God has commonly applied to himself. Just one example in the Old Testament, Genesis 17.1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. The almighty is the term that God uses to describe himself. It speaks of his matchless power. It's the phrase rendered El Shaddai, right? The Lord Almighty. And it shows us that he's without equal. It points towards the uniqueness of God. Almighty is an exclusive term. And God expresses that. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Again, we see it's exclusive, Right? The Father holds this title exclusively. He holds the right to glory exclusively. He will not give it to another. He will not yield it to another. And yet we know that there's a glory that Jesus Christ possesses. And so while God will not yield his glory to another, he will share it with himself because the two are one. Colossians 1.18 Speaking of Christ, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So we see Christ in creation we see that the traits that were exclusively belonging to God are also shared with Jesus Christ. We see that God is supreme, right? The Almighty. And yet we see the supremacy of Christ, again demonstrating that the Father and the Son are one. <coughs> so just to wrap up the section on God the Father, we see that in his relationship to Jesus, Jesus places himself in submission to the Father. We see that he possesses oneness with the Father, and we see that he possesses the traits of the Father. 
as it pertains to us, our relationship with God as the Father only comes through Jesus. As we see as God relates to others, God is supreme. This is a unique thing. There's God and there's everybody else. And yet we see that through Christ's supremacy, he is one with God. And so the triune God and everything else. So now let's look at the next section. Creator of heaven and earth. So God has many aspects, but his role as creator is particularly prominent when he talks about himself in the Bible. We'll take care of the obvious. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so yes, the statement, creator of heaven and earth, is certainly accurate, certainly stands up to scripture. But rather than just end there, let's look just a little more into this. This is this at the burning bush. Moses asked, who should I say has sent me? Genesis 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. When God is asked to identify himself, to give himself a name, he chooses the name I am who I am. And I am speaks to his self-existence. He places himself outside of creation only thing that was not created. There's the creation and the creator. He made everything that has been made, and this is how he wants to be referred to for all the generations to come. So it's burned into his identity. The identity he wants to have with us is one of creator. God also references his role as creator as his source of authority. So here in the book of Job, it's chapter 38, there's been a lot of discussion between Job and his friends. A lot of bad advice has passed back and forth. And finally, after 37 chapters, God intervenes. He steps in. And the first thing he says is, you should listen to me. What does he say? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or where were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. This is just one example of how God uses this. And if you read the passage, he goes on and on. This is just a, a brief piece of it. When, someone want, when God wants to explain to someone why they should be quiet and listen to him, he often does so in the context of his role as creator. He uses it as the foundation of his authority. And the creator does have authority. An example from, from my life, quite a bit more humble, but when I first started working, I went down to Manville and I did some post-flood surveys. And so I wrote up some survey questions that we're going to be asking door-to-door. And I went down there and I met a coworker, never had met this person before, and they started to go over the survey with me because they had been doing it for a couple of days. They started explaining each question on the survey and what it meant to me. And we got to a certain question, they explained it. I said, I don't think that's what that question means. And they said, no, it means this. I said, I'm pretty sure it means this. 
And they said, no, you're wrong. It means this. And I said, well, I wrote the question, so I think I know what it means. <laughs> well, suddenly there was a whole different perspective on it, and suddenly my explanation was the right one. So yes, being the creator does give you the authority. In the same way as that person told me how the form works, we like to think we know how the world works, right? We like to think we're in charge of it until God points out that he made it and he knows exactly the way it should be. In fact, if we looked at it truthfully, what we would realize was that he made it perfect and we broke it, right? That's really the role. We're the ones that broke the world. So how else does the Lord proclaim his role as creator? Well, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animal, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, this command to rest on the Sabbath is one that was a point of debate throughout the centuries, and it was one that Christ often found himself conflicted with. Right? Now, of course, as creator, he had the right to do whatever he wanted on the Sabbath. Uh, but when you break down the interpretation of this law, it's connected to the role as a creator. And everything that the Jews did to try and follow this law, every little rule they made up, was really centered around the act of creating and destroying. That's how they defined it. Right? And so, right in the foundation of the Ten Commandments, God's role as a creator is prominent. And he's commanding people to respect his role and position as the creator. Isaiah 43.1 But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. So his role as creator relates directly to us. We were created for his glory. God's purpose in creation was to call out a people for himself, for his glory. And that's exactly what he's in the process of doing through his church and more importantly, through his son. John 1, 3. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Of course, speaking of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification from sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So again, we see here, if God is exclusively the creator and the universe was created through Christ, again, we see the oneness of Christ and the Father 
manifest through the action of creation. Finally, Revelation 21, 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. God's not done in, in his role as creator. The Bible starts with the creation, and it ends with the creation. God has made it very clear that this world we're living in has been corrupted, and it's wasting away. And after he's achieved his purpose of glorifying himself through calling out a people from this corrupt world and redeeming them, this creation is going to be replaced with an uncorrupted creation. And that's something I'm really looking forward to. Thank you, Tavon. So this morning has flown by, or at least it has for me, uh, and we've really barely scratched the surface of these wonderful topics that are contained in just the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed. So let's just wrap it all up here. We've really gone through a lot of Scripture, really been packed with Scripture. Uh, and so it's possible you may have uh, lost the thread somewhere along the way or zoned out. So here's your chance to catch up. We took the first phrase of the Creed and we broke it down into three pieces. We looked at each of those pieces and how they reflect our understanding of God, and then we expanded on those points to see how that knowledge impacts us. And so the first phrase of the creed, I believe. Through the word I, we saw that this is a personal statement of faith. Our declaration of God as our Savior is a personal matter. Simply put, there is no group offer of salvation. Salvation is offered on an individual basis to those who believe. And, of course, that brings us into the next word, that is belief, that this is a matter of faith and not works. Nothing here is said that you can earn your salvation or that you can earn your salva the salvation of anyone else. It really is the gift from God that comes through faith that he gives us and belief in him. We looked at God the Father Almighty. We saw how Jesus submitted himself to the Father we saw that through how his active submission, we have access to the Father because he sacrificed himself for us. We saw that the Father is all-powerful. And at the same time, we saw that Jesus and God the Father are one. They're one in their relationship. They're one in their character. They're one in their traits. And lastly, we see that this oneness was something that Jesus prayed that we would have. If you were to go through that passage in John, he prays that we have oneness with each other. He prays that we have oneness with him. And he prays that through him, we would have oneness with God the Father. And then lastly, we looked at creator of heaven and earth. <clears throat> we saw that God clearly identifies himself as creator. We saw that his role as creator ties him to Jesus. We saw that he had a purpose in his creation. And that is to glorify himself through us. And lastly, we saw that there's a new creation coming. So the question is, can we say in good faith, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? I think that absolutely does stack up against scripture. And I think it's a wonderful reminder in a simple phrase of who God is and what he did for us. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to call you our Father, Lord, to know 
that you have a love for us, Lord, a love that caused you to send your son, a love that caused that son to submit himself to you and to go through an act of sacrifice, Lord, one that really should have been unimaginable, but one that he went through willingly for us. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you're a creator, God, one who is calling out a people for yourself. Lord, we thank you that you have called us out. Lord, we thank you that a new creation is coming. And Lord, as we consider your words that we read today, we pray, Lord, that they would leave here with us, Lord, that they would be imprinted on our hearts, Lord, that they would be reflected in our actions, and that in so doing, we would bring you honor and praise and glory in all that we do. We pray this in your name. Amen.